Let's reopen our Bibles to Psalm 50. Thank you, Nathan, for leading us in Psalm 50 this morning and for explaining its powerful words to us and its weighty exaltation of the great God who is a judge for sure in this psalm. We shall face that judge, every single one of us, but those who offer praise and glorify Him and those who order their conversation aright are considered to be the just and the righteous in the Word of God, and it will be a great day of rejoicing and a great day of adoration for them in the presence of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was looking forward to it because he was laboring, whether present or absent, to be approved and accepted of God before he stood before him. In Psalm 50, I just want that last verse that we ended with a few minutes ago. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. You live for the glory of God, and it tells you here how to do that, and that is to offer praise to Him. You have to use your mouth. Your mouth needs to be connected to your mind, because if we praise with the Spirit, we're to praise with the understanding as well, because the Bible tells us to pray and to sing with the understanding. The Lord doesn't want your worship without your heart, for your heart is the seat of your affections. So when you offer praise that's connected by your mind and your heart to your voice, it glorifies Him, and we want to do that. Even in the Old Testament, that form of praise was more important to God than the the sound of trumpets and cymbals and multi-stringed instruments. And a man that orders his conversation aright proves that he is the righteous man. Because only a righteous man cares enough about God and has any fear of God to change the way that he lives so that he pleases God. O Lord, bless us this day that we will glorify Thee by our praise and that we will order our conversation aright because it is our desire, Holy Father, that You will show us Yourself and Your salvation. We are to know God, to better fear Him, to better love Him, to better glorify Him, and to better serve Him. There's nothing more important. You were created for this purpose, and you were saved for this purpose. So you're twice the Lord's for this purpose of loving, fearing, praising, and serving Him. And when we offer praise, we glorify Him. He's got all the glory, an infinite measure of glory, but He loves us reflecting it by our praise. This made great men and great women in both Testaments, those who sought the face of God and worshipped Him and walked with Him. And I want you to be like them. And He, the Lord God of heaven, wants you to be like them. You know that David was that way. Abraham was that way, building an altar and naming places Bethel, the house of God, because it was so important for them to be in a place where God had come and met with them. So you know men like that. If you want to find a woman that sought the face of God and knew God, then read the first ten verses of 1 Samuel chapter 2 sometime and get the prayer of Hannah, because it is one glorious prayer. Every man that's ever read the prayer wishes they had prayed that way, including David. It's an inspired prayer and preserved by the grace of God for us. 
My brethren, how do you treat a thing in which you delight in glory? Whether it be something ridiculous, like a motorcycle or a car, a job or a house, a wife or a family, a bank account, how do you glory in something that uh, you consider very delightful? You want to know about it as much as you possibly can so that you can glory in it more. So you look at its details and its features and get excited about each of them. You may memorize them. You want to share with others the superiority of that thing in which you delight so that they can find glory in it right along with you. How many have shared pictures of girlfriends or boyfriends or spouses or children? Women love to carry in their purses pictures of their children. Look at my children because they delight in them. Why don't you do something like that about the glory of God? We don't really care about those little sacks of water that you gave birth to. Be encouraged, Mary Ann. In the big scheme of things, they're not very important. But yet a woman carries pictures of them. Look at my children. And she is so swollen she needs Vaseline to get through a doorway. But what about the glory of God? I'm trying to ask you, you get excited about things in this life, and we want to get excited about the things of God. You should want to share with others a picture of God from the Bible, or a picture of God from creation, or from providence, or the grace that was bestowed upon me that saved me from being a wild rebel. He's full of mercy and compassion and love and loving kindness. His mercy endureth forever. Praise His glorious name. Do you do that? Do I do it? Do we do it enough? We can do it more. You want to protect this thing you delight in from any evil report and defend it. You mess with a mother bear about her whelps and she'll defend them. Will she defend the glory of God like she should? And the praise and worship of God. You want to avoid any personal behavior that could offend them or corrupt it. You want to be around it and consider it as much as possible, which is why we come into the house of God, to be reminded again of the Lord and to set our affection on Him. These thoughts should provoke us and and warn us and convict us that we give this kind of attention and care to other things, but we need to give it to the Lord Himself. What did you do this past week? Did you look at His creation in a little different way? Did you make any effort, even if it was one minute long, or one minute longer than the previous week, to look at the glory of God and His creation? Did you look at His providence and taste and see that the Lord is good? Did you take a little bit of time to be quiet and to meditate on Him? And once quiet, did you muse about His great works and about Him? That's why He gave them to you and revealed them to you for you to know them and to delight in them and to think upon them and to consider them. Did you go into the Word of God looking for some of those verses that lift Him up and glorify Him? Did you look forward to being in the sanctuary this morning so that you could seek Him and His face? Did you boast of Him to others? Because when you boast of Him to others, it affects two people. You for the boasting and they for the hearing. And so we can together glorify Him. Did you celebrate His glory by raising a glass in His name and tasting something good in His name? Did you pray and ask Him to show you His glory? 
These are things that I exhorted you to do last Lord's Day. Whether saved or not, whether bound for heaven or hell, knowing and delighting God is your purpose for existence. We sing the God-glorifying words of Isaac Watts, Should sudden vengeance seize my breath, I must pronounce thee just in death. And if my soul were sent to hell, thy righteous law approves it well. We declare him just and righteous in those words of that song we sing. Because it doesn't matter whether you're going to heaven or to hell, you should give him all the glory. God commands all men everywhere to repent. In the times past of Gentile ignorance, he he winked at their stupidity and idolatry. But now in the New Testament, he has sent his apostles and the ministers from them into all the world and commands all men to repent. Human clay exists for God's glory, and God will get glory from that human clay, whether it be vessels of honor or vessels of dishonor. You can show yourself a vessel of honor by giving Him praise actively and glorifying Him by praise, as Psalm 50 and verse 23 tells us, and by ordering your conversation aright to be righteous practically in the way you live, you show yourself to be one of God's elect. Knowing God is a great privilege and is a great pleasure. It is the fulfillment and purpose for your life. It is your destiny. Do you grasp it? Show it. Be thankful for it. A Nipponese car manufacturer once said, Life is a journey. Enjoy the ride. Our journey is on the way to heaven. And the ride is knowing God now and then. Enjoy it. They don't know what they're talking about to drive their bucket of bolts and rust machines. For the glory of God, let's delight in knowing Him. He wants us to know Him. There's so many things I want to share with you today. And I hope that the Lord will bless it. The Lord God will open your eyes and draw nigh to you as you draw nigh to Him. The Bible emphasizes God's glory throughout. Start turning with me by opening to Romans 11. Romans chapter 11. And I want to show you that God's glory is our duty. It is defined and it is emphasized in Scripture. Whoso praiseth, whoso offereth praise and gives praise glorifies God. And so the Apostle Paul was no slouch when it came to giving glory to God. Look at Romans 11.36. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him, are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen. What do those words do to you? They should not be mere sound bites. But even as a sound bite, it is an inspired sound bite. And it's a glorious sound bite. But do you understand what it's saying? God is the source and origin of everything. God is the means and the providential preserver, sustainer, and user of everything. And God is the final end, purpose, and glory of everything. Everything. To whom be glory? It's a Him. It's a person. It's a being. It's a rational being. It is the Lord God Himself. And it deserves an amen, though it's in the middle of a letter to a church. 
Amen. That's just one. Before we leave the book of Romans, look at 16.27. Romans 16.27. These verses are throughout the Bible. Some of you should be taking notes. You seem a little feeble when it comes to the blog. To God, only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. You frustrate me because I can't post again until you post. I wait hours. I have my email set that tells me when anyone posts, I don't sit there having to watch a screen or refresh. My email tells me when any of you come around because I'm waiting with my 3 by 5 card because it's too much pleasure to spend some time in God's Word looking for verses that glorify Him. Amen. To God only wise. To God only wise. To God only wise. Be glory through Jesus Christ for how long? Forever and ever and ever. Amen. Look at Galatians 1.5. Oh, I just want to tease you a little bit this morning with the Word of God. As the Apostle Paul understood his purpose in life, and when a man is full of the Holy Ghost, and a man is dealing with the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, the effort is on glorifying God. And I want you to glorify God. I want to glorify God. I want to glorify Him the way Psalm 50 and verse 23 tells me to offer praise with my mouth in private or in public by my keyboard or by my lips. And I want to order my conversation aright so that He'll show me Himself and His salvation even more. Galatians 1.5 To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Is this redundant to have this throughout the New Testament? To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I thought he was just starting. How can you start a letter to a church and say amen in your introduction and salutation? Because it deserves an amen. It is so in truth. Be it so verily. Let us do it. Oh, there's so many more. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, O Lord God, hear us as we worship Thee, our Creator, and our adoptive Father through Jesus Christ the Lord. We shall praise Thee for eternity, for Him, through Him, and to Him be all the glory that is subordinate to Thee. Verse 21 of Ephesians 3, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, World without end. Amen. Amen. In the middle of the Ephesian epistle. Unto him is referring to God, the Father, by whose name all the whole family in heaven and in earth is named in verse 15. Because the glory is by Jesus Christ to him throughout all ages. It's never going to end. World without end. And our world doesn't end. This world's going to be burned up and changed and it's going to be called a new heavens and a new earth because it's going to be new in nature. We're always going to have it and we're always going to be able to worship Him, our blessed God. I could go on and do this and satisfy the hour easily, just from Paul. Just from Paul, but 
We don't want to do that. Look at Psalm 63. We'll leave Paul. We have Peter. We have John. They're just like Paul because they were men walking with God and they knew the purpose for their existence. They knew why the Spirit was in them. They knew the purpose for the existence of the churches. The glory of God. In Psalm 63, the Psalms are full of the duty of giving glory to God. This is your purpose. Psalm 63 Verse 1, O God, Thou art my God, early will I seek Thee. Oh, we want to be like this writer of Scripture. My soul thirsteth for Thee, my flesh longeth for Thee, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see Thy power and Thy glory, so as I have seen Thee in the sanctuary. I've seen the glory of God before the psalmist writes here. But I want to see it again. I've seen His power before. But I want to see it again. Look at Jeremiah chapter 3. Do you think God would raise up a prophet that wouldn't give Him glory? He got glory out of Jonah by his mouth later when Jonah said, Salvation is of the Lord. And he got glory out of Jonah's life before he said, Salvation is of the Lord, but it wasn't a pleasant experience for Jonah. And as you had explained to you from Psalm 50 earlier this morning, God is going to get glory out of you. And I hope that you heard the long-suffering of God is either for your salvation or for your judgment, but in either case, that double-edged sword leads to one choice. Repent! Because we account that the long-suffering of God is salvation, not that it's approval. It's an occasion to repent. Repent! And order your conversation aright. And if the next sin is the one that will push him over the edge and fulfill all the sins of the Amorites to where he will finally let his people in to annihilate them, then you should still repent to stave off that judgment. Romans chapter 2 tells us the long-suffering of God leads us to repentance. Amen. Or heapest up to thyself wrath against the day of wrath. Are you treasuring up extra wrath when God does finally break forth upon you as a bowing wall totter, totters and falls at once and crushes the person standing beside it? Oh, but if we repent and show our conversation or, and and all, and and reform our conversation, the Lord will show Himself to us. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15, And I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And it shall come to pass, when ye be multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done any more. But there would be a greater and more great, a greater glory that the Lord would bring upon His people that's described there. Oh, brethren, let us give God all the glory that He, he expects, desires, and deserves from us. God's glory is His resplendent beauty and magnificence due to His many infinite perfections. 
The glory of a thing is its shining effulgence and beauty because of its perfection. The Bible describes it in different ways. That's the glory of God. We give God glory when we praise, honor, and admire those perfections of Him by our worship. So there's God's glory, which is the perfect beauty of all of His perfections shining forth. Out of Zion has His beauty shined. You read in verse 2 of Psalm 50. Because it's in Zion where God's presence dwelt between the cherubim and Israel. And His blessing was upon that nation of people and no other. And it's in the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ today when we have His glory present and at hand where He meets with His people. Our glory is when we give Him exalted praise and exalted honor and admiration in our worship. You know, look at Luke chapter 2 as we think about the glory of God. This is what you want to give Him. And so we want to make our worship as beautiful as we can to praise Him. We don't want to make it beautiful in the sense of stained glass and beautiful drawings, carvings, gold, pictures, and things like that. We want to lift up our voices. We want to use the Scriptures well. We want to sing well. The means that He's given us in the New Testament. Luke chapter 2 and verse 9. There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And verse 9 tells us, And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. It was so bright. It was so brilliant. It was shining with power. They were sore afraid. Can you imagine the middle of the night? Your pupils are as big as plates. And all of a sudden the glory of the Lord is shining. Your pupils would be the head of a pen. And you'd be on your face afraid. It's like the Apostle Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Around midday, a light shone upon him. Brighter than the sun, he would say about that light. So the Bible compares the glory of God to light. The glory of God is such that there's no need for a sun in heaven. Why in the world would you want that little tiny star that's 93 million miles from us when the, the, the glory of, the, of God and the glory of the Lamb are the light thereof? Amen. The sun. He made the stars also. He knows them all by name. His fingers have fashioned the heavens. No. The Lord's going to be the glory of that place. Amen. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll see that glory is compared to honor. What we're looking at is just a sample of scriptures to tell us that we want to glorify God. We want to see His glory. We want to understand His glory. And we want to lift up His glory by admiring it. By speaking of it. By musing on it. Oh, we, we see things that cause us glory. You know, we see a marching band. And we think, isn't that a glorious picture? We see some military parade and we, we think, how glorious. We see a few pitiful jets fly overhead, maybe with colored exhaust. And we say, how beautiful. How glorious. Come on. Are you kidding me? 
in just 45 minutes, they would drop into the ocean empty of fuel and incinerate themselves by hitting that surface so hard. Are you kidding me? You say, well, Michelangelo's picture of God on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is glorious. You're twisted, and I question your sexual orientation. There's nothing glorious in this world except his creation. And it's only a little reflection. It's part of his ways and how little we know of him by his creation. According to Job 26 and verse 14, in 1 Corinthians 15 and the 43rd verse, our bodies are sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. There, that verse tells us, these, this is how you should read the Bible. What is that verse in the first clause, in the first comparison, teaching us? It is sown in dishonor. Our bodies, the way they are, they stink, they're decaying, they're weak, they're pitiful. They're dishonorable. It is raised in glory. So we can tell that the Holy Spirit uses the word glory to describe honor. And so God has honor and we want to give Him honor. And Lord, help us to give you all the honor that you deserve. One of my favorite verses about the glory of God is Job chapter 40 and verse 10 because it's compared to several things in one verse which makes it easier for us. Job chapter 40 and verse 10, the Lord challenges Job who had been saying that his treatment was unfair. He challenges him with this challenge. Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency and array thyself with glory and beauty. Oh, okay. Now now here's Job. Picture it, please. He's got the least amount of clothes on possible. Think of the smallest undergarment you can imagine. Because he's scraping himself from top to bottom because of the boils that are on him. And he's sitting in a campfire. And the Lord says, Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency and array thyself with glory and beauty. We want the verse for this fact, that glory is associated with beauty, with excellency and majesty. I need to keep reading because this passage is just too good. Hint, hint, anyone that takes notes. Verse 12, look on everyone now that is proud, Job. Job, I want you to look on every proud man and bring him low and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together and bind their faces in secret. Then will I also confess unto thee that thine own right hand can save thee. Job, when you can deck yourself with majesty, excellency, glory, and beauty, when you can cast abroad the rage of your wrath and behold every one that is base and that is proud and abase them. Verse 11, I missed. When you can look on men that are proud and bring them low, when you can tread down the wicked in their place, then I'll admit that you might be able to save yourself. But since you can't, and until you do, you can't, you need me, shut up. And what does Job do? He shuts up. 
I will not speak again. And we don't want to speak again except, can we praise Him again? Should we read the passage again? Since I missed verse 11, I'm going to read it again. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath. You know, when you get angry, I just want to tell you something. When you get angry, really, there's only one person you hurt. Because we don't really care. When you get angry, the only one you hurt is you. You know, you get angry at some driver in front of you because they're on their cell phone. They forgot to go when it turned green. Do they ever know that you were angry with them? I beep my horn. Precious. This is, this is casting abroad your rage. This is Pharaoh saying, Who is the Lord that I should serve him? And playing with him through ten plagues and then drowning him in the Red Sea. God has cast abroad the rage of thy wrath and behold every one that is proud and abase him. Take Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold of the great image of the kingdoms of the world, the king of kings, and abase him. Put him in a field on all fours and let him eat grass for seven years. Job, try that. This is how we want to use our mouths. We want to lift up the great God. When you read the newspaper, the internet, or you hear the news about some political enemy, about some blasphemer, about some educator, some entertainer that has stood up against God and opened their mouths and are flapping their gums, just remember there's a God in heaven who can cast abroad His rage, and He will. He will. There's a proverb sitting out there right now, in internet land that says when the wicked are multiplied and transgression increaseth, the righteous are going to see them all fall. That's our God. We give Him glory today. But listen, you can't write Psalm 29.16, and I had to, and you can't read Psalm 29.16 and be thankful for it unless we're going to order our conversation aright and offer praise and glorify Him, or we are hypocrites deserving greater judgment than those upon whom we are calling it down from heaven. Because He's given us so much more. We've taken His covenant in our mouths. What did Mount Sinai look like when God came down on it? It looked like a furnace going up. A furnace, all those sparks and little coals and blasts of heat coming up out of that thing, blasting up out of that mountain. It was altogether shaking. And Moses, who knew God so intimately and had seen all the plagues, said, I exceedingly fear and quake. That's the glory of God. What they have to do to get ready for it? Three days, no sex. Three days, take some baths and get some clean clothes on before you come near this mountain. And if you let your little puppy dogs even come close to this mountain, kill them. Don't let a beast near this mountain because the glory of God came down upon it. I thank God that in my late teen years, passages like Exodus 19 that describe it in detail were of great blessing to me. I hadn't met him before like that. He came and met with me through places like Exodus 19. A blast furnace on Mount Sinai and the whole mountain shaking and the sound of the trumpet kept getting louder and louder until the people were plugging up their ears and screaming to Moses, you talk to us, we can't handle this voice anymore. And when he came down from the mountain, they didn't want to hear his voice either because he said, drink the Kool-Aid. I hope you know what I'm talking about. 
he was just a little ambassador and he cast the, the rage he cast his rage abroad on that whole nation oh lord we want to love you in your glory but we want to see all aspects of your nature there's so many more things that could be said the rainbow that ezekiel saw in the chapter 1 it just goes on and on oh lord thank you no wonder david said that the house that to be built for the lord needs to be exceeding magnificent all this is about the glory of God. Do you see His glory? Do you know His glory? The heavens declare the glory of God. That little ball out there, 93 million miles away, that little star that we have called our sun, is such a powerful light every morning. It drives all the darkness away. It comes into your room. You can have blinds on your windows, and it's still going to come into your room and let you know that it's daytime. Because it's so bright, it, it represents the glory of God in one little creative object that He gave us to behold. So many things could be said. We need to go on. I want you to know that God, our God that we worship, is incomprehensible. Turn with me in Job to the 11th chapter. Job chapter 11. He is incomprehensible in His entirety, but He has chosen to reveal parts of Himself to us. And that is such a blessing. Without Him helping us, we could not and would not know Him at all. If He did not create things so that we could see how creative He is, beautiful things to see what design He has, organization and reproduction for us to know how organized He is, we wouldn't be able to grasp in all the things that God is. But He's all of that and so much more. But He is incomprehensible and I just want to say that about Him because he deserves that to be said about him, because he wants us to say that about him. Right. Job 11 and verse 7, Canst thou by searching find out God? Do you know how to answer that question? Canst thou by searching find out God? The answer expected here is no. But is there a seeking by which you can learn more about God? Yeah. Yes, but that's not here. Right. This is... A warning to Job, thinking that he can figure God out and should be sitting in judgment on him. Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? What do you know about Him? What percentage should we give you, Job, that you know about the Lord? It is as high as heaven. How high is that? Well, the known universe made it look pretty high. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell. What canst thou know? How deep is hell? When you find the bottom, tell me how deep it is. The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. These are dimensions that are huge. And it's about the being and the nature of God. And we can't search Him out or know Him unto perfection. And this is what the Bible tells us about Him and what God wants us to know about Him. Job chapter 36. Some theologians have spent their time in the annals of religious history in emphasizing the incomprehensibility of God, and I will for a few moments, but then I want to move on to better aspects about Him. Amen. He wants us to know this about Him. We'll never understand Him fully. Even Jesus Christ is subordinate to God in eternity. Even Jesus Christ said, Of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels in heaven, 
neither the Son of Man. So God's got things in His counsel that even Jesus Christ doesn't fully know in His role as our mediator, as the God-man, as the Word of God. He is the expression of the counsel of God. And I hope you can still divide between the two without me chasing that one any further. Job 36, 26, Behold, 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 look at this. That's what the word is there for. God is great. And we know him not. Neither can the number of his years be searched out. What happens to your mind when you try to think of a being that never had a beginning, but who is eternal? How do you ever get to this day? Because see, I look at this day as following yesterday, which is one week ago from the last time we were together in this form of an assembly. Well, how do we, how did the Lord ever get to today if he never had a beginning? Wouldn't he always be traveling forward in time, but never able to come to it? I don't even know how to put it into words. And do you know what that means? It means that he has deprived us of wisdom, sort of like the ostrich. So as you stand in the zoo and make fun of that little beady head with its beady eyes, just remember, he's deprived you of wisdom as well, because you are unable to comprehend eternity. And do you know what the Bible says about God? He inhabits eternity. Inhabit is to live or dwell there. Inhabit eternity. I live and dwell in eternity. I never had a beginning. I never had an end. There is no time to me. And so we smell electrical fire. The wire nuts start to melt down. And we bless his holy name. And so it says, behold, God is great. You know that little child's prayer, God is great and God is good? Just stop with the first three words and tell those children, just stop and think about what you said. Do you know what you said? God is great. Oh, and He is good. But you know what? I want Him great first so that His goodness is great. More to come on that. They're the counterpoints of God's attributes. Oh, Lord. Help us. God is great, and we know Him not. Neither can the number of His years be searched out. If you didn't like Job 11 because you said life as Bildad and Zophar didn't fully know what they were talking about, I'll give you Job 36, where Elihu knew exactly what he was talking about. Amen. How about, great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. He's a great football player. What does that mean? It means that he averages 4.6 yards per carry instead of 4.5 yards per carry. Wow, that is exciting. That is greatness personified. By all means, let us cheer as he leaves the stadium. Let us make giant pictures to put in our wall of this guy that can do 4.6 yards. And so the world just rushes after what they consider great. God is great, and His greatness is unsearchable. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 11. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Lord, forgive me for tithing, but you know that your word is very broad and there is so much to be shown from it. Guide me. Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 5, As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. Now that makes you look pretty ignorant right here in this verse. You've got three problems with knowledge in your education. There's three shortcomings when you graduated. You don't know what the way of the Spirit is. The wind bloweth where it listeth, where it wants to. You don't know how the bones grow in the womb of her that is with child. Because there's nothing hard that enters in, and there's nothing hard that matches up with it, but yet bones form. Even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. They keep exploring, and they think when they find DNA, they've discovered something. Then they look into DNA and they realize it's beyond us. DNA. But you see, there's something beyond it. It's in the book of God where all the members of a little child are all written who in nine months' time of gestation are fully formed according to how God wrote them out. I want this one to grow up to be tall. I want him to be coordinated. I want her to be short. And it's all written in the book. I want stubby fingers. I want long fingers. I want a piano player. I don't want a piano player. Whatever the case might be, it's in God's book. And he writes it. And we do not know these things because for the moment we're considering God is incomprehensible. And so we finally have something that we can look at and we can't figure out. The highest man on earth, we say, he puts his pants on in the morning the same way we do. Let me tell you something about God. He doesn't wear pants, and He doesn't put them on the way you do. He doesn't do anything the way you do. He is worthy of us glorying in Him. No matter how many shiny medals that are bought from Hong Kong and put on a man's military uniform, He still puts the pants of that uniform on the same way you put your jeans with holes. And when He's got the flu, He looks and acts the same. And when he must relieve himself, it smells the same. You say you're disgusting. Lift your eyes up from this world and be satisfied with no glory down here. Right. Lift him up toward heaven. He's incomprehensible. He's glorious. Amen. Oh, Job 5. Everything he is and everything he does is beyond us. Job chapter 5, verse 9. God doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Verses like this are just precious. Verse 8, I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause. Job, why don't you seek unto God and commit your cause to Him? Verse 9 of Job 5, which doeth great things and unsearchable. His greatness is unsearchable because He does great things that can't be figured out. Marvelous things. Without number. There's an infinite number of marvelous things that God has done. Only a few of which we've ever seen. Oh Lord, we bless you and praise you and thank you. Look at chapter 9 and verse 10. Which doeth great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without number. Have you found that the book of Job is full of such statements? 
Because when real philosophy takes place, and that is trying to understand what's going on in the universe, believing in a creator God, oh, the things that are said there are so much better than were ever said in Athens, Greece. This campfire had four men around it with one young observer and listener, and they said some great things about God. Now they misapplied God toward Job, and they unfairly criticized Job. But they did lift God up. We can only know what he reveals, and he reveals only parts of his greatness. The Lord told Moses, you want to see my glory? I'll just show you a little bit. I'll show you my backsides. I'm only going to show you a little. Even in heaven, our knowledge of him is going to be limited because he is invisible. He dwells in a light that no man can approach unto. What are you going to do? Put on sunglasses and see if you can get closer for a better vision? This is what the Bible says of him. He's incomprehensible. Whether it's Hosea's day or Paul's day, men are ignorant of the true God. They worship the unknown God because they didn't know him. He's incomprehensible. You know, their gods are comprehensible because they made them up. You know, if you take a name and then write a little story, this God got started this way. He was suckled by a wolf, and then he... Oh, come on. But see, our God's incomprehensible, so they don't know what to, they don't know what to make, what image to make. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You know, when I think about God's incomprehensibility, men obsess about mysteries. You know, they all want to know who Shakespeare was. Why would you want to know? Don't you know enough perverts? Do you need to find that one out by name? They want to know who Jack the Ripper was. Well, that's an honorable search. Who was Jack the Ripper during the daytime? They want to know who assassinated John F. Kennedy. Oh, and they'll search and spend their life. What if it was Lyndon Johnson? He turned around and shot the president. What if it was Lyndon Johnson? You haven't learned anything worth anything at all. You've just corrupted yourself with information that's totally worthless. And you think you've discovered something. But when you think about the incomprehensibility of God, everything he reveals to us is one fantastic blessing. And it ought to be the search of our lives, and we will never exhaust him or plumb the depths of the things that can be known about him. They get excited about those things. We should get excited about knowing God as fully as possible. If you think that religious zeal by the Apostle Paul or others that you may have known in your life is vain or it's wasted, you forget that God is way past your knowledge and they are not measuring up to what he is truly worth. Practical implications of knowing about the incomprehensibility of God. If you think a situation is hopeless in your life, ha! there's a God who can easily solve your situation. If you can't imagine power above the might of those that are oppressing you, think again. There is one higher than the highest on earth. If you think that you can figure him out by creation and scripture, you better understand that being filled with all the fullness of God is only by him doing it to you by his power and strength. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 19. O Lord, 
Help us to appreciate your incomprehensibility and from there to appreciate the fact that you've made yourself knowable. God is infinite. You know, infinite, without measure, without limitation, without defaults. He's just endless. There's no measuring. There's no standard. There's no confining Him. He's infinite. He goes on and on. We can't describe it. We can only get part way and and then we melt down in our ability to even verbalize it. Except to use this word that we've created, infinite. Something that cannot and does not end. It just goes on and on and on. And that is what the Bible says about God. He's infinite. Look at Psalm 40. Psalm 40. O Lord, we worship Thee this day. Many, O Lord my God, verse 5 of Psalm 40, Many, O Lord my God, are Thy wonderful works which Thou hast done, and Thy thoughts which are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto Thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. You say, well, we can count to the trillions. You can't count high enough. We can... No, you can't. Because He's infinite. And I thank God that I worship an infinite God. Do you know what an infinite God should mean to you with your finite problems? Do you know what comfort there is in that? Your finite dilemmas. When you have a dilemma, do you know that it is ridiculously stupid? And an infinite God can solve those. And a wise scientist, if there is such a thing, a wise scientist is able to call upon an infinite God to show him just a shade more of finite knowledge and be able to make advances that the world has never seen before. And whether they ask or not, that's the only way they've ever made advances. Is for the Lord of heaven to lift their eyes just the tiniest degree so that they see a shade of improvement in the finite knowledge man has. The finite knowledge man has of things, if we reverse this verse, cannot be identified. It's too small. Every great scientific advance that they make, for instance, I've mentioned this one to you, Bernelli and others came up with the principle of the flow of a liquid or of air over a curved surface so that it is the top of the wing and the air moving over the top of the wing, it doesn't press the wing down, it lifts the wing up. It's the air in front of a sail that moves a sailboat, not the air behind the sail. You don't want air behind the sail. You want the air curving just right around the front of the sail, and it will pull a sailboat with tons of ballast through the water when they discover that. And you know, God shows them. You know what? I want to take a little rabbit here. Get your shotguns out and turn to Isaiah 28, your 66 Magnum. Isaiah 28. I've mentioned this to you before. This is where I come back, and I love to come back to this. There is no humanistic education that ever enlightens a man without God lifting the blindness and the scales off their eyes 
to behold another fragment or a just of a shade of improvement in understanding of things and how they work. Because God worketh them all. He All things consist by Him. He upholds them all by the word of His power. It's His works. And they're without number. Isaiah 28, verse 23. Give ye ear and hear my voice. Hearken and hear my speech. This is something you should listen to. This is something you should remember to understand scientific advances in the world. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow? Doth he open and break the clods of his ground? When he hath made plain the face thereof, doth he not cast abroad the fitches and scatter the cumin and cast in the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their place. Do you know how stupid a farmer would be if he took those five grains, mixed them all up and threw them in a field? They each have a respective place. Does a man go out and just plow all day, every day? Is that his, I'm a plower. And so he plows 12 months out of the year. Does he just break up his soil to break up his soil? Or is there a purpose? Step one, step two, step three, step four, step five. Stop and listen to this. God wants to teach you something. Why did farmers figure that out? Do you think it was trial and error? In two years, they would have all starved to death if it was trial and error. They would have never figured it out. Verse 26. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. For his God doth instruct him to discretion and doth teach him. God taught men how to be farmers. If you think that Adam and Eve chased rabbits with boomerangs for supper, you are gravely mistaken. Now there may be men that chase rabbits for supper even to this day, but they have a severe problem. And do you know what the problem is? God has deprived them of wisdom. Listen, Adam and Eve's children were inventing organs and working in brass. They weren't flinging curved sticks at rabbits. By the way, how do you think the boomerang came into existence? Ah. As the aborigine in the interior of Australia sat at his computer-aided design computer working on CAD, I think... That if we curve this stick, just like this on his keyboard, it will come back to us. How many sticks have you ever found that look like a boomerang in nature? You say, God was even merciful to them. Yes. And you know, when they were working at, when they were at McDonald's one day sucking on a straw, and they blew the paper off the straw at their friend across the table, they realized, aha. I can make a bigger straw, put a poison dart in it, and I can eat monkey. But all of it comes from God. I want you to think about everything man has ever discovered. It comes from God. For his God doth instruct him to discretion. Discretion is the ability to know what to do and when. Those five grains are not mixed and scattered on a field. For the fitches are not threshed with a threshing instrument like some of the other grains are. Neither is a cartwheel turned about upon the cumin. 
But the fitches are beaten up with a staff and the cumin with a rod. They're done differently. Bread corn is bruised because he will not ever be threshing it. Can you imagine certain kinds of grain if you just kept tossing them in the air? Let's take the corn that we know about. If you take and throw a hundred corn cobs into a sheet, and you've got four of your sons at the four sides of that sheet, and you just keep tossing that sheet up and down, how long is it going to take for the corn to come off and fall down in the sheet and the cobs fly away? You say, well, we all know that. <laughs> you only know that because God showed it to us because He teaches us. Bread corn is bruised because he will not ever be threshing it. That's what I'm talking about with you. Nor break it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with the horseman. This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. The excellent work of God in this place and the wonderful counsel of God in this place is having taught men from the beginning how to farm. And that they knew that each grain was to be treated differently. You say... How did God do it? He just spoke the word, man knew it. When a big bear walked up to Adam and Adam said, what do you want to call it? Who gave him the name? Bear. God did. How about his wife? Eve. Eve. He, he just kept saying it for a while. Right here, Isaiah 28. This is the God I worship. I want you to worship him with me. I know you do. I want you to worship him more. Every time man puts some article out about what they've discovered, it's because God lifted the blinders just a little tiny, tiny bit for them just to see a little bit more. And if you take all the knowledge that man has now and we reverse Psalm 40 and verse 5, it is nothing compared to what he can do. Look what he can do. Amen. Oh, Lord, you're wonderful. Don't you ever put limits or bounds on your salvation, heaven's glory, or any divine thing. He's so far beyond you in faithfulness, integrity, and every aspect of his being. Right. If you doubt a holy God's willingness to forgive you again and again, think again. You have a serious problem. You don't know how to forgive. He knows how to forgive to the superlative degree. Amen. He says so. My ways are not your ways. I am not like you. You don't know how to forgive, and you hold me accountable to your type of forgiveness? Forget it. Do you know where to find that, to encourage your heart, you melancholies? It's Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. They're fabulous verses. As the heaven is higher above the earth, so are my ways and thoughts higher than your ways and thoughts. And there's only one subject under consideration, and it is not intelligence or creative power. Right. It is forgiveness and the ability to pardon sin. Amen. Oh, don't you think that all we're going to talk about is the rocks are thrown down by him? We're going to talk about the rocks being thrown down by him, but we're going to talk about the fact that he can forgive you in an infinite degree. You can't even come close to grasping it mentally. I can't write it to you. I can't tell you about it because he's infinite. As high as the heaven is above the earth. Tell me how high that is and I'll tell you that's where his forgiveness stops. Thank you, Lord. You know, I love the incomparability of God or his solitariness. That means you can't compare him. If all I knew 
was a quarter horse. And you wanted to tell me about another kind of horse. Do you know how you would tell me? Well, it looks like a horse, but it's different in this feature, this feature, and this feature. And I'd be able to get an idea in my mind. But you know what? We've got a problem when it comes to God. And He knows that there's a serious problem. And He, he loves that serious problem we have. To whom then will you liken me? That's His incomparability and His solitariness. He alone is God. And you know those verses. You're in Isaiah 28. Look at Isaiah 40. Oh, let's bless the Lord and love Him. This is what you were created for. You say, but what about the Lord Jesus Christ? Who came up with the idea of the Lord Jesus Christ? Who was able to bring about a virgin birth? Who raised Him from the dead? Who gave Him power over the entire universe at His right hand? It's the living God came up with all that. You want to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ? How did you get into the Lord Jesus Christ? Because the Bible says you were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. The Lord Jehovah is greater than Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. And I mean that in His human nature as our mediator. That's the second time I've had to defend myself. You should all understand that. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 28 is the best place to go to find out that Jesus will be subordinate to God through eternity. Jesus in His divine nature is God. Jesus is Jehovah because Jesus means Jehovah is my Savior. Jesus means Jehovah is my Savior. Isaiah 40 and verse 18. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto Him? We love to make comparisons of things. If I was to only know what an apple was, could you tell me about an orange? But you would start with the apple. And you would explain, well, you've got to peel this orange. You can't eat the skin. And it's going to be really juicier. It's juicier. And, and the seeds are throughout it. But there's nothing to compare God to. Because He's by himself. He's solitary in the universe. He's the only wise God. He's the only true God. He's the only God. One person can be compared to another by their race, by their physical traits, by their education, by their profession, by their temperament, by their personality, by their appearance. Oh, all those things, but there's no way to compare God that way. Look at verse 25 of Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 and verse 25. To whom then will ye liken me? The Lord challenges you, challenges you with the problem originated in verse 18. Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One. Look at chapter 46. Oh, I love these ten chapters of Isaiah. They haven't been fully plumbed yet. Isaiah 46 and verse 5. 46.5 To whom will ye liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? This is the Lord challenging Israel, the church. And so He's challenging us through the Word of God. He is uniquely God without peer in type, attribute, works, etc., and etc. There's none like Him. Look at Exodus chapter 8. Back to the second book in the Bible to Exodus chapter 8. Oh Lord, help me. 
Exodus chapter 8, there's none like unto thee in heaven or in earth. Exodus 8, 10. This is just one of many, many, many. And he said tomorrow, and he said, Be it according to thy word, that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. Exodus 8, 10. This is, of course, in the midst of some plagues coming upon Egypt. Tomorrow you're going to find out that there's none like unto the Lord our God. And many other verses could be raised. But my brethren, let's finish before our break with this thought. and We'll come back and work on it when we return. Not only is this incomprehensible, infinite, incomparable, solitary, being, knowable. Yes, he is knowable. But not only is he knowable, he's approachable. And not only is he knowable and approachable, he wants us to know him and approach him. And not only does he want us to know him and approach him, he has given us all the means that we need to easily know him and approach him for a perfect walk with God in this world. There is nothing deficient for us to have a perfect walk with God until we are filled with all the fullness of God. If we are not, it's our fault, not his. He's made himself knowable. He's made himself approachable. He wants us to do both, and he has given us the means to do both. That is incredible. I ended the first sermon last Sunday with John 14, 23. Let me remind you of its words. John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, we can get ourselves into the verse by starting right there. If a man love me, he will keep my words. That's how we know what real love is. It keeps the words of Jesus Christ. And my Father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you obey the Lord Jesus Christ in your life by what he taught and what his apostles taught, because he commissioned them to teach everything they taught, then the Father will love you, and the Father will come to you with Jesus Christ and abide with you. They will come to you and live with you. They'll make their abode in you by the Spirit of God. Incredible. This is the knowability and approachability of God. And while I love His incomprehensibility, His infinity, His incomparability, and His solitariness, I like His knowability a whole lot more. Because if I can't comprehend Him, and if I can't compare Him, and I can't discover Him, and He's infinite, and I'm very finite, then I lose. And I can't praise Him like He's worthy of being praised. But I can know Him, and I can approach Him, and He wants me to do both, and He's helped me to do both. David said, When thou saidest unto me, Seek ye my face. That's from last week's psalm by our brother Jonathan, verse 8. The Lord said that. So the Lord wants us to know him. Seek ye my face. Thy face, Lord, will I seek, is the right answer to that possibility. Draw nigh to him, he'll draw nigh to you, the Bible says. It is an error of theology to focus too much on his incomprehensibility and miss him. It's a commandment and a blessed privilege for us to know him. 
Don't ever say you don't know him or that he is hard to know. It's your fault if you don't know him. He's made himself knowable. Your inputs aren't right in your life. You're not seeking him. You've grieved the Holy Spirit or you're lazy or you're rebellious. He can be known. He saved you to know him. He created you to know him. Did you see in Acts chapter 17 last night that even pagans can know him and they can know him easily because he's not very far from every one of us. Us. Paul jumped right into the midst of Mars Hills with those pagans. He's revealed everything you need for a complete relationship with him. It's my job to make war against everything that comes up in your heart and mind that keeps you from knowing him. If you know God only a little bit, from the Bible and by what we understand in this church you know him better than anyone else in your life the Lord has blessed me very much with this thought and I can only present it to you then we need to finish who do you think you know the best forget I'm talking about horizontally in this world who do you think you know the best somebody you really know Come to me at break time, and I'm going to ask you somewhere between five and ten questions, and you're not going to be able to answer any of them. Because you don't know your spouse, you don't know your children, you don't know your parents. The only person that knows a person is the spirit within them. And because we're sinners, we change. Because we're faulty, we change. Circumstances change us. Moods change us. A bad day with two... Two traffic lights at the wrong time can mess a man up on the way home from work. You think you know somebody? You don't know them. I'll tear you to pieces. You know God far better. He has put it in writing. He never changes. And the things about Him are true to an infinite degree. He is very knowable. What do you think this book is for? Why do you think He saved you? You say, well, I know my spouse loves me. Are you sure? I'll go talk to your spouse at break time and find out the limits on their love for you. Because I'll ask them a few questions. I'll tell you about love that is from everlasting to everlasting. Love that is in an infinite degree. Love that is entirely conditional, but makes it eternal because he gave his son to love you and me if we're believers in Jesus Christ. Don't ever say you don't know God. You don't know anyone like you know God. You already know Him better if you'll just stop and think about it. You do not know what kind of a mood that your husband or your wife is going to be in when they come home from work. But I can absolutely tell you what kind of a mood God is in right now because it's the same as yesterday and it's the same as tomorrow and it's the same as last year and it'll be the same a million years from now. Women should rightly ask, will he still love me in the morning? You never have to do that with God. Oh, Lord, help us to grasp a few of these things. You cannot answer much for your spouse because their spirit is their own and you have never met it. You have only seen little parts of it. They change daily by events and moods, and they are faulty, sinful humans. Any question you answer about them today may have a different answer tomorrow. 
They can't communicate clearly. They can't communicate with certainty. And their changes are so great that one of these days they're even going to die and not even be there. Don't tell me you know somebody, but you don't know God. Our God never changes, never dies. He's always there. He's always the same. And He's put it in writing. And He's proven it by works that are unbelievable. The giving of His Son to prove His love. And it just goes on and on and on. His mercy with the nation of Israel over generations. And it just goes on and on. Human relationships are very faulty, variable, and inferior due to the fact that humans are involved in them. But ask about God, I know confidently with great certainty and to an infinite degree everything you'd ever want to know about Him. God's written a library about Himself and He never exaggerates and He never changes. It's altogether true. What a blessed being. What a wonderful book. What a wonderful religion. What a great God. He has created us to know Him. He has saved us to know Him. He has revealed Himself to us to know Him. He indwells us by His Spirit. His Spirit comes inside us. You've never been... You want to, you think you're close to your spouse? His spirit comes inside you. Oh Lord. Lord, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. May the Lord bless the preaching of His word.